Good morning. Happy Father's Day. Uh, my name is Mark Hinkle. I am an English teacher at William Byrd High School. I'm also one of the elders here at Orchard Hills, and I have been blessed with the opportunity this morning to, to get to speak to you all. So thank you for being here. I know you wouldn't have come if you'd known I was speaking. <laughs> I appreciate that. That's what I was fishing for. Uh, we need to say a special greetings to the folks that are gathered in the heat outside. In fact, I think we've got a picture of them. There they are, our diaspora. There we go. And uh, to all the folks online around the world in a multitude of countries, wherever you are, we're glad you're here with us today. Um, that said, this morning we're going to continue looking at the Old Testament prophecy of Hosea. We're going to continue examining how does Jesus reveal himself even through an Old Testament text like this, and how does it still speak to us yet today? But first, I want to start with a good Father's Day story. Uh, there's a group of young boys, 13, 14 years of age. I'm not going to name any names. The, 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 the names have been changed to protect the guilty. Uh, they're out riding their bikes on a summer day, and they're two, three miles from their own neighborhood now, and they've come to a, a lot that's on the side of the road, and it's not very well kept. The, the weeds are growing up through the, the driveway there, and there's a, an old garage that sits on this piece of property. And obviously it doesn't get visited much by its owner. The, the vines are growing up the walls, and the gutter's falling off the roof, and window is broken, and the boys stand there catching their breath, and you probably know where this is going. Like, like any uh, good, healthy teenage boy, they're simply overcome. They're overwhelmed by that, that, that good, God-given desire to hear the sound of glass hit with a well-thrown rock from about 20 yards or so. And so the competition begins. Who's got the best aim? And they start throwing rocks until they hear the car coming down the road. And they all drop the rocks and quick they study their shoes or some innocent thing like that until the car is gone. And, and they pick up the rocks and they proceed to continue. And they don't hear the next car until it's too late and it's right there. And Billy is in mid-throw and he drops the rock. And you can see the guilt on his face and they wait. And the car passes by and they wait and nothing happens. And so they continue and they pay no attention to any more cars that come by. In fact, Billy even notices a few of the drivers as they drive by, see him and his friends throwing these rocks. And they're shaking their heads, boys. But the cars just go by, and it's no big deal until one stops, slams on the brakes, skids into this gravel driveway. Billy turns just in time to see the driver open the door and start to climb out. And of course, who is it? No, no, it's a police officer. No, Billy's father, he gets a phone call at work. He's got to leave early. He's got to come down here and find his boy and apologize to a police officer and a landowner and, and write for some portion of the renovation this garage is going to get. Write a check. And Billy watches all of this happen. His apologies are made as a check is written as his father walks over to him and takes him by the shoulder and escorts him to the car. And we're going to pause the story right here because there's an important thing to consider. 
there may be a few of us in the room here today or, or online at home who can relate to what it means, uh, what this story means for, for Billy's father. They can relate to him in his situation, in his circumstance. But not everybody can. There's only one character in this story that everybody in the room can relate to, that everybody in the room can put their finger on and see them, themselves in, they can see their own character in. And of course, that's Billy. And the truth is, if you have any appreciation for fathers today on Father's Day, it's because you relate to Billy, not Billy's father. And with that in mind, we're going to take a look at Hosea. Um, over the past couple of weeks, Sutton has walked us through the story of Hosea. It's the first three chapters of the book, and it tells the complete story of Hosea's circumstance, how he uh, married a woman who had been a prostitute, how she broke the marriage covenant with him, left him and went back to her old way of life, how she, she got so caught up in her sin and so mixed up with the wrong people that she literally becomes enslaved. And when Hosea goes to, to find her and bring her back to himself, he actually has to, to pay money. He has to buy her freedom. It's a sad, sad state of a marriage. How sorrowful, how painful, how difficult this must be for Hosea. But he does it. He redeems her, and he continues to pursue her as a husband pursues a wife. Now, that's the whole story. Hosea's chapter, uh, chapters 1 through 3. Now as we begin chapter 4 and we look at the rest of the book, Hosea begins explaining what does this story mean? How are the Israelites supposed to relate to this? How can you and I relate to this? So that said, uh, let's begin with verse 1. If you want to join me in your Bibles, you'll find this right between Hosea 3 and Hosea 5. If you've got... One of the church Bibles with you, you're going to find it on page 891. And verse 1 begins, Hear the word of the Lord, O people of Israel. The Lord has brought charges against you. We're going to stop right there. My students hate this. We get through about half of a sentence and I say, okay, we've got to stop right there. We've got to talk about this. But the fact is, we've got to talk about this. All right? One of the things that I tell my students as we're reading together in class is you need to try and relate to the hero of the story, the story's protagonist. What conflicts does he face? What does he learn? How does he change? This is how the author is going to express his big ideas to you, dear reader. Well, here we have found the exception to the rule. Um, Hosea says, the Lord has brought charges against you. In other words, you aren't meant to see yourself reflected in Hosea's character. You aren't the redeemer. You're the one in need of redemption. You're the one with charges against you, unfaithful, disloyal, and adulterer. You are Hosea's wife. And as we read through the rest of the book of Hosea through the summer here, that's what we need to keep in mind is the perspective from which we are meant to interpret the story. The Israelites, readers today, we are Hosea's wife. So now let's take a look at the rest of verse 1. 
He says, hear the word of the Lord, O people of Israel. The Lord has brought charges against you, saying, there is no faithfulness, no kindness, no knowledge of God in your land. There's three specific charges that he makes against the Israelites here. First, the Lord says there is no faithfulness among his people. That is to say that God and the Israelites have entered into some kind of a covenant relationship with one another, and the Israelites are failing to hold up their end of the deal. So this is made very clear in verse 2. If you keep reading with me, he says, You make vows and you break them. You kill and steal and commit adultery. There is violence everywhere, one murder after another. They're breaking covenant law. In fact, they're breaking several laws. It's easy to go back over verse 2 there and, and count up which of the Ten Commandments that they're breaking. And much of this was actually done in worship of other gods. See, there were nations around Israel that had other religions, and a lot of those religions required things like child sacrifice, uh, temple prostitution. And in fact, as we read through the rest of this chapter, what we're going to see at the root of everything that he points at, every sin that gets pointed at, is actually the worship of false gods and idols. If you look at verse 7, it says, they have exchanged the glory of God for the shame of idols. If you look at verses 10 and 11, they have deserted the Lord to worship other gods. Verse 12, they ask a piece of wood for advice. They think a stick can tell them the future. Longing after idols has made them foolish. Verse 17, leave Israel alone because she is married to idolatry. Verse 19, their sacrifices to idols will bring them shame. Through that whole chapter, right up to the last verse, it's repeated over and over and over again. The real sin here is turning from God and worshiping other idols. We're trying to worship these other gods right along with the one true God. And it has made them foolish. It has got them doing things that they know are sinful as acts of worship. The Israelites had become unfaithful. They were worshiping gods other than the one true God. And of course, what is the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. See, in that way, their relationship with God was very much like a marriage. A married person should have eyes for no one other than their spouse. An Israelite or a Christian today shouldn't have their faith in anyone or anything other than the one true God. The Israelites were being unfaithful. They were turning to other gods like a promiscuous wife. The second accusation that God makes against the Israelites is that there is no kindness in the land. Now, the English Standard Translation translates that word for kindness as steadfast love. The King James trans, uh, translates it as mercy. What he's really getting at here is that the Israelites aren't acting with good intention. They aren't misinformed or ignorant of their covenant with God. They weren't genuine, kind, loving, merciful, and also sinning by accident. They were actually aware 
of their own unfaithfulness. If you look at verse 4, the Lord says, Don't point your finger at someone else and try to pass the blame. My complaint, you priests, is with you. God speaks to the spiritual leaders almost as if they're children. You've all seen the child who's caught sneaking the extra cookie off of the tray. And the second he's caught, you know that he's aware of his guilt because he freezes and he drops the cookie. What cookie? I don't know what you're talking about, a cookie. Oh, that cookie. And then they immediately try to act like they were acting with good intentions. I thought that was a cookie you didn't want. I thought that was a, it was a broken cookie. See, it's broken on the floor. I thought, I thought that's why it was okay for me to take it. And then they try to blame their older sister. She made me do it. Every excuse immediately undermines the previous excuse, and you can see the guilt written on his face. The entire time, the child is aware of what he's doing. Now imagine a grown adult who behaves with that same level of immaturity. And imagine for a moment being married to that person. Their unfaithfulness isn't a misguided act of kindness or love or mercy. It's actually a selfish desire to find immediate gratification. The priests, they want to blame their infidelity to God on the neighboring nations, on the neighboring religions, on their own politicians. But the Lord says, you have been unfaithful. And you have no desire in your hearts to be faithful. Now the Lord speaks here to two very specific groups of people. The first is the church, and especially its leaders. If you look at verse 6, it says, Since you priests refuse to know me, I refuse to recognize you as my priests. Verse 7 says, The more priests there are, the more they sin against me. Verse 8, When the people bring their sin offering, the priests get fed, so the priests are glad that the people sin. Verse 9, and what the priests do, the people also do. He points directly at the religious organization and its leaders. I'm going to get off track here for just a moment. In uh, our life group, we've been working through the minor prophets, so we looked at Hosea several months ago, and we're approaching the end of the Old Testament now. And our discussion has turned to this point over and over and over again. As we're looking at what God directs, what, what God says to the Israelites, to their leaders in particular, to their priests, he's speaking to a religious entity. He's speaking to a congregation of believers, of worshipers, of his followers with whom he has a covenant. And yet in our discussions we tend to find ourselves talking about American politicians and laws. And I want to redirect that. When we're looking at what Jesus or what, uh, what, what God says to the Israelites here, we don't need to consider it in terms of politics. He isn't speaking to um, lawmakers. He isn't speaking to uh, political constituents and, and voters He's speaking to believers, worshipers. When we consider what's being said here, we need to examine the character of the church, 
the representation of Christ on earth. Who is it that is Christ's bride in the New Testament? It isn't America. It's the church. Who is it that's described as the body of Christ? It's the church. And if we are aligning ourselves as an organization with Christ, that will be rewarded in good political situations and in bad. We need to examine the church and especially its leaders. The second group that he addresses here is essentially the exact same, only on the smallest scale. He addresses the family and especially the fathers. Verse 14 says, But why should I punish your daughters and your daughters-in-law for their prostitution and adultery? For your men are doing the same thing, sinning with whores and shrine prostitutes. Why should I punish the daughters who are doing this thing when they've been put there by the men in the family? In other words, what the fathers do, the daughters also do. And so it falls on every member of the family, but especially the fathers. And it falls on every member of the church, especially its leaders, to be alert and on guard against the temptation of false teaching and false worship. Now, as we compare our situation to the Israelites, I think it is important to say that today in the 21st century, it really is not our inclination to sacrifice infants on an altar to gods like Baal. But I do think it's our inclination to sacrifice our children to self-worship and the doctrines of, of secular humanism or to relativism and universalism, these ideas that every idea and every faith is equally valid and equally beneficial. I think that these are the idols we presume to worship in tandem with God that ultimately lead to our destruction. There needs to be kindness, there needs to be love, there needs to be mercy in our worship, and there needs to be sincerity in our approach to God. The third charge against the Israelites is that they have no knowledge of God. So two weeks ago, Sutton talked about what's meant by the Hebrew word that's translated here as knowledge. This kind of knowledge is uh, relational. It's an intimate knowledge. If you told me that you know about the President of the United States, I would find that unremarkable. Anybody can watch the news. But if you told me that you know the President of the United States, well, that would be a different story. That suggests some kind of a personal relationship. That suggests some kind of mutual obligations or responsibility that you have with one another. And this is what Hosea is getting at. God's charge against the Israelites is that they haven't gotten to know him. They don't understand the depth of relational knowledge, of intimacy that God wants to have with them. Take a look at verse 6. He says, My people are being destroyed because they don't know me. Since you, my priests, refuse to know me, I refuse to recognize you as my priests. God's charge against his people is that they're unfaithful, they're insincere, and they don't know him. We can all easily picture a wife 
saying to a marriage counselor, my husband isn't faithful to me. He doesn't love me. He doesn't know me. He doesn't understand me. This is God's sentiment towards his people. And the rest of the sins named in this chapter are just extensions of those three failings. Now think back to poor Billy, who got caught breaking windows that didn't belong to him. His father came and and paid the debt and collected his son, just his son. He didn't hurt all of the boys into his car. In fact, if he had, the police officer who was dealing with the situation probably would have said, what's what's going on here? What, What are you doing? But wasn't surprised at all when he took just one child. Why did he only take the one child? It's because they knew each other. Billy's dad probably knew about the other boys, but who did he know? Who did he have that covenant relationship with? And as they were walking back to the car, Billy probably did not think to himself, this is it. My father's going to disown me if he lets me live. The relationship's over. Now, he might have articulated those words in his mind, but he didn't mean them in any literal sense because Billy understood. Sure, there's going to be consequences, maybe very painful consequences but there's also going to be reconciliation. There's also going to be redemption. His father would continue to meet his obligations as a father, and his father would continue to love him, and his father would continue to seek to get to know him. And how did Billy know this? Well, it's because he had come to know his father. Think back to the first three chapters of Hosea. Even after Hosea's wife breaks her covenant with him, leaves him, practically destroying herself in the process, he redeems her. He seeks her out, he pays her debt, he presents himself to her again so that she might come to know him and love him and become faithful to him. This chapter, Hosea 4, where God lays out man's sin of idolatry, and false worship for the whole world to see isn't the end of the story. God still desires us to know him, to love him, and to place our faith in him. And he's willing to redeem us at the highest cost in order to make this happen. And this is where we have an interesting perspective. The readers of Hosea could look at those first three chapters where the whole story gets told and they could see how the story ends. Hosea seeks out his wife and there is redemption and there is reconciliation and he pays the cost. Today, well, that that, that cost has been paid. We're all familiar with John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Through the death and the resurrection of Christ, we have been offered redemption. And yet, there are those among us who are hesitant to receive it. There are those among us who just want to know about 
Jesus, who want just to get a sample, maybe on Sunday mornings, and then spend the rest of the week worshiping their, their other idols. If you look ahead to John 17, 3, Jesus says a prayer over his disciples and over every believer who would come. He says, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. God wants to be known, not just obeyed. Those things that we find ourselves wanting more than we want Jesus, well, we can bring those things to God. And it's not always going to be easy, but there's always the knowledge that God is a redemptive God, that God is a faithful God. He wants it to be easy for us to trust him, to place our faith in him and only him because we know him personally. We don't just know about him. He wants our acts of worship, study, prayer to be joyful and precious to us as well as to him because of the intimate connection that we have with him that comes through an exclusive covenant relationship. And in order to achieve that, he has already paid the ultimate price. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the, the opportunity and the freedom, Lord, to, to gather, to examine your word, to talk openly about it. And Lord, I thank you for your faithfulness for your love, for your mercy, for your kindness, for your redemption and your endurance, Lord, that you pursue us even when we ought not be pursued. And Lord, I just pray that you would continue to move through this building, Lord, through this congregation to strengthen the relationship that we each as individuals have with you and that we as a church have with you, Lord. And I just pray that you would, that you would use us to make yourself known in a personal, intimate way in our community, in the valley, Lord, in our country, and in the world. Lord, I just pray your blessings on this church and your work through it. Amen.